have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner light My guest today on Spirit in Action is Kathy Salton. Kathy is the author of two books about Lebanon and the Middle East. She moved to Beirut with her Lebanese husband in 1969 at the age of 26. Her 14 years there included the first eight years of the Lebanese Civil War. Her first-hand experience with and love of the Middle East with the Muslims, Jews, and Christians of that ravaged land make her an invaluable resource and inspiration for peace in that region. Kathy was raised and practiced as Roman Catholic until shortly after her return to the United States. She is part of the National Peace Foundation, author of two books, and is much in demand as a commentator on Middle East developments. Kathy, welcome to Spirit in Action. I can't believe you're able to squeeze me in along with all of the national networks who wanted to interview you. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. You're personal experience puts you right in the middle of one of the major issues going on in the world, because you lived in the Middle East for 14 years or so. You lived in Beirut, Lebanon. Can you tell us about that, what your experience has taught you, and what that teaches you about what's going on today? I moved to Beirut in 1969 with my Lebanese husband and two small children. They were one and two and a half at the time. When I got to the Middle East in 1969, Beirut was still the Paris of the Middle East. I can remember as I drove along the uh, road from the airport, seeing this 
encampment. I didn't know what it was at the time. I was told later that it was the Palestinian refugees. I knew nothing about this at the time. In fact, I really brought my middle-class ignorance with me when I moved to Beirut in 69. I had never really left the States except for a few Caribbean vacations, but I knew really nothing. I left because I wanted to move as far away from my parents as possible. I was thinking that my parents were closed-minded and they just couldn't see things the way I did, and I wanted to get as far away as possible. Fortunately for me, my handsome young Lebanese showed up on the door and I was able to begin my adventure. Beirut was very welcoming. I think I found my place to grow in Beirut much more so than I had done in my own family home. I'm the oldest of five children. I was loved like a Lebanese. My mother-in-law and I had major differences, but overall, my father-in-law and I got along beautifully, as did my sister-in-law and brothers-in-law. I went about instantly trying to learn French and Arabic. I chose French first because it was the easiest and subsequently picked up what I would best describe as kitchen Arabic. Although I'm proud to say 22 years after moving back to the States, I still understand every word of Arabic, at least the Lebanese dialect of Arabic. The war began rather unexpectedly, at least for those of us who were so complacent in our lives that we didn't bother to pay attention to the political unfoldings around us. I think that's probably a human trait that we all are guilty of committing. But the war did start in 1975 of April. There were a few warnings about a month or two prior, at least warnings that I was privy to, demonstrations in the streets, assassinations of prominent political leaders in the South. But because that was the South of Lebanon, I never assumed that that would really affect my life in Beirut. After all, my life in Beirut was a very privileged one. I was the wife of a physician. I just didn't think too much about anything else. I had totally forgotten about those Palestinian refugees I had seen in the camp. But when the war began in April of 75, my world was turned upside down. Suddenly, I was hearing machine gun fire at the end of my street. Suddenly, people were getting kidnapped because they were Christians or Muslims, something that never, ever occurred prior to this civil war. But civil war is a strange thing because overnight, people who are seemingly friends or at least maybe employees together in a firm or live on the same street or are kids who grew up in a neighborhood and attended the same school. Civil war means that some of these people take a side and they're willing to kill for their side or for their religion, it seems. My husband says that when he grew up in Beirut, nobody ever talked about religion. No one ever said, oh, he's a Christian or he's a Muslim. My husband had good friends who were Jews. We had a thriving Jewish community in Beirut, as did most Arab countries, particularly Baghdad and Damascus, Cairo. But in Beirut, they had a very successful community. Two of my husband's colleagues in medical school were Jewish. He had a lot of Muslim friends, but no one was ever labeled by their religion. Whoever started the Civil War certainly knew when and how to throw in the ingredient of religion. 
And pretty soon, uh, Christian would be stopped at a checkpoint in West Beirut, which turned out to be labeled Muslim West Beirut and Christian East Beirut. But if a Christian was found in Muslim West Beirut, he could very well have his throat slit. The same thing could happen at a Christian checkpoint in East Beirut. This is how vicious civil war is, and it certainly was vicious in Lebanon. Who is responsible for this civil war? Everyone. Everyone's a participant. The losers are the innocent civilians who are cowered into their homes or shelters and live there sometimes for weeks or months on end. One of the strangest things about the Lebanese civil war was, in a sense, its sense of civility. Civility, how can I say that? Because I just talked about people having their throats slit. But civility in that we had quite a few ceasefires. In the first six or seven months of war, we probably had 30 ceasefires. People would, for whatever reason, stop fighting, whether it was a coffee brought down by a mother who knew two kids on the street who were on opposite sides of the barricade and invited each other to share a coffee with her, or if it was at the end of the month when paychecks were due and each militia was handing out its paycheck. Or they even were nice enough to have stopped fighting when schools let out so that children could get home from school. The school buses could circulate, they could have plenty of time to get home, have a little lunch, and then fighting would resume late afternoon. So in that sense, they were considerate, if you want, of the population they were otherwise murdering. The Christians, primarily the Maronite Christians, which is a sect that's very particular to Lebanon. It was a Saint Maroon who lived in a monastery on the border of Lebanon, eastern Becca Valley that borders on Syria. He founded the Maronite religion. My husband is a Christian, but he's a Greek Catholic, so please don't ask me what a Maronite Christian is other than what I just said. The other participants in the war were, to some extent, the Sunnis, a lot were the Druze, led by a certain Walid Jamblat, and some of the Shia militias. But they had a role to play much later in the Civil War. The Palestinians were probably, it's hard to say, I think historians will either judge Palestinians as cause or catalyst of the Civil War. Their presence certainly triggered the Civil War. When Yasser Arafat was thrown out of Amman, Jordan, by King Hussein in 1970, after cross-border incursions into Israel and a lot of skirmishes in the capital, and Hussein felt threatened, he expelled Yasser Arafat and his PLO, and they moved to Beirut. They set up a city within a city, and then it became what we call today a state within a state in the refugee camps, these same refugee camps I saw and I was driving from the airport the first day I arrived in June of 69. The Palestinians joined forces with the Druze, who are an offshoot of Islam, but their caliph is from Egypt. And together, their declared enemy were the Christians. But the Christians were certainly not innocent bystanders by any means. So there was a religious tone to the war, imported, I still maintain, and fueled. On the Muslim side, there was a lot of anger and resentment that Christians ruled the city, ruled the country. When the France gave Lebanon its independence, which they had carved out of the state of Syria in 1943, they declared that a Christian Maronite would always be president of the country. 
and that the other prominent positions, such as the Sunni, would be the prime minister, and the Shia would always be speaker of the parliament. But in order to keep the predominantly Christian influence, the head of intelligence, the head of military intelligence, the military chief of staff, and all the very, very important positions were always handed down to the Christians. Little by little, whether it was for immigration reasons or just overpopulation on the parts of other communities, the Christians did eventually become the minority or did not maintain a strong enough majority, according to the Muslims, to justify having so much power. There was also many economic considerations. So these were all factors that contributed to a civil war that turned into a religious war. One thing I wanted to make clear, Kathy, you stayed there a number of years after the whole hubbub started, didn't you? Why didn't you leave? Yeah, I stayed for the first eight years of the Civil War. We lived right on the Green Line. We had to leave our apartment 11 times because of the bombing and the fighting when it got too intense in our neighborhood. It's a very good question, why didn't I leave? I think that had I lived there as an American... I would have felt a tremendous need to get out of there because I wouldn't have felt any loyalty to Lebanon or to the Lebanese. But because I was living there as a Lebanese, my husband Lebanese, my children were growing up Lebanese, they were in Lebanese schools, and nobody we knew was leaving. Even though I had that choice as an American to leave any time, my children were both born in the States, and my husband could have gotten his green card any time he wanted. It was never anything we considered. My husband felt an obligation to stay with his patients. Many times he said, take the children and leave. I did not want our family separated. Did we ultimately pay a price for this? Of course. Anybody in conflict that long suffers eventually from an accumulation of stress. But at the time... That was just the decision we all made as a family. It was ultimately made for us in 1983, and that's probably the only reason that we're here today, 22 years later. In 1983, this was after the horrendous summer of 82 when Ariel Sharon and the Israeli army bombed Beirut for 67 days, wreaked havoc all the way through the south up to Beirut, my daughter started manifesting in probably January of 83, a depression, and I had some medical problems. And by that summer, it was suggested that we leave. My husband decided he wanted to stay, and we were going back to the States. We hadn't been back to the States to visit family or friends for four years. We came for two months thinking this would be good for our daughter Nyla to get out. The day we were supposed to leave to come home on September 1st, 1983, the airport closed in Beirut. It closed because of the battles resumed. The Israeli army was still in Beirut at that time. It had pulled back into the mountains. But it helped to fuel, if you want, another major round, which lasted another year. My children and I were in D.C. at the time. That's where I grew up. And so we moved to Boston, where we had good Lebanese friends, and my brother-in-law was also there. This Lebanese friend, who was my brother-in-law's best friend, had a huge house, invited the kids and I to come and live with him until we could decide what to do. We stayed there till March of 84, assuming every single day that we would go back to Beirut. What I think a person who's normal, like you, 
doesn't understand that when you live in a conflict, in a war zone, you can become accustomed to it, and it becomes your norm. Yes, you wake up tired every day. Yes, you don't sleep well because of the bombs, but somehow you maintain hope because that's part of being a human being. But when everyone around you is trying to survive, you join the group. You don't say, oh, I'm an American. I can get out of here any time and I'm leaving. We had a beautiful community of family and friends. Constantly I had people at my lunch table or dinner table. And the kids, this was like a security blanket for them. They felt loved. They never felt fear, even though, I mean, yes, there were bombs, but we would never stay in our apartment, which was a rooftop apartment. But we'd go down to my husband's office on the second floor. So, in other words, we adjusted. And during those first six months when you would think, aha, she's definitely going to leave, she doesn't because she gets fooled, you see. Every time there's a ceasefire, you say, the war is going to stop. Our leaders aren't that dumb after all. They're definitely going to arrange, look, there's a French emissary who's coming. Look, the Vatican sent somebody to talk to these crazy people and things are going to... And then little by little, month goes into month after another ceasefire and another week or two or a month of battles, you become acclimated into it. And you don't ever think about leaving. That's the really weird thing that happened, and it happens to everybody at least people who are dedicated to living in a place. I mean, this was a little bit different when we recently saw, for example, Lebanese who had gone home for the holidays to Lebanon and got stuck during the Hezbollah-Israeli war. And the first thing was like, yikes, I have to get out of here. And they were evacuated, et cetera, or found private ways of getting out. It's different when you're living there and that's your life. You do become acclimated. So in other words, when my husband came in to see us in March of 84, And by coincidence, one of his patients was in Boston also. And this friend of ours patient, his name was Saba, really saved our lives because he told us one day after lunch, he said, you know, there are peace talks going on in Lausanne, Switzerland right now. And let me tell you something. It's a bunch of baloney what they're talking about there. There won't be peace anytime soon in Lebanon. And I'm telling you, as your friend, you must stay in the States. At that moment, we were like children, unable to make a coherent decision. We could never cut the umbilical cord. So you're asking why we stayed. These are all reasons why we stayed. And this friend, Saba, cut our umbilical cord. He thought for us. And obviously something in our minds finally clicked to say, gee, maybe he's right. Maybe we shouldn't try to go back there. After that, my husband contacted his old boss at the University Hospital in Madison, and he found a position for him here in Eau Claire, and that's where he's practiced gastroenterology for the past 22 years until he just retired this year on July 1st. I'm trying to get a picture, Kathy, of who you were in 1969. You were 26. Were you an exotic world traveler? Did you grow up in some kind of a liberal household where the idea of living in a country with lots of Muslims seemed like a normal thing? Who were you at 26 versus 40 when you came back? And specifically, your ideas about religion, what you thought about it in 69 when you went, and what you thought about religion when you left in 83. In 69, I was a practicing Catholic, 
moving to Lebanon, I um, attended either Greek Catholic churches or a Latin church, Roman Catholic. In fact, I probably went to Mass just about every day. I lived in Beirut. Also, if you want to compliment that picture, I think I was just an average American, a risk taker, as it turned out. No one else in my family is a risk taker. So God knows. I think I got this from my Irish grandmother who came on the boat alone from Ireland, and I'm named after her. People say that I have her same spirit and steadfastness, stubbornness. I worked at a hospital where there were lots of foreigners working, a lot of foreign physicians, and I thought their lives sounded very exciting. The countries that they came from sounded very exciting. As I said earlier in the interview, I was just very fortunate that this handsome young Lebanese came along (laughs) and that we fell in love and we married very quickly within about six months. And we've been married for over 40 years, so something went right there. My religion. I was a practicing Catholic until I came back to the United States in 1983. Having landed in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I did set out to find a church that I would feel comfortable in. I didn't find one. I tried. I'm very good friends with Father Clemick, by the way and respect him and just love him like a brother. He's just been very close to both my husband and I, but he's also smart enough to understand that I have my reasons for not coming to Mass. I think the church that I went to the most was Sacred Heart, the chapel. And at that time, there was a Father Steve, I think he's still here, from the Ecumenical Center. And I found his sermons arrogant, and I found his sermons empty. And I admit that it's probably in part due to the fact that living through a war makes you a different person. Surviving a war makes you a different person. What matters in life and what's important in life changes who you are, how you think. I'm not belittling Father Steve at all, but he did not light any fire in my soul when I listened to his sermons. As I said, I found them senseless. And I left Mass every Sunday very angry until I finally decided that this is not what God intended and I can still be a good person and not necessarily have to attend Mass to prove it. So I've not gone back. I think you must have lived in East Beirut because you said that was the Christian area. I'm pretty sure a lot of people in the U.S. don't even realize that a lot of Middle Eastern countries have significant enclaves of Christians. Did you also have a lot of Muslim friends, at least until the war started? Was that the norm, or is it really like segregation, you know, where the blacks and whites lived on opposite sides of town? I'll go backwards to your first question. It's not segregated. It ultimately became somewhat segregated, but for the most part, Christians, Muslims, everybody got along. We attended social events together. We belonged to the same beach clubs. Um, There was just, there were no difference. And once again, we gather here as the night grows long, deep in the year. It is a season of light, of prayer and fasting, and the endless longing for love everlasting. All the children of Abraham, all the children of Abraham, 
And we are Isaac on the mountaintop By the hand of God, may the killing stop Faith without measure, hope without end But it is love will make the nations bend All the children of Abraham 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 John McCutcheon, The Children of Abraham is the Song. You're listening to an interview with Kathy Salton, author of A Beirut Heart, One Woman's War, and Israeli and Palestinian Voices, a Dialogue with Both Sides. If I had gone maybe to a different social group, less educated, less open-minded, less open to the world, I might have gotten a different reception. But as I said before, religion never played a role in those that were educated. And it didn't matter to anybody what anybody's religion was. Lebanon is a particular case, if you want, in the whole Middle East. Because when France carved out, France was one of the mandates 
after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, it was the French and the, and the English who broke up, if you want, the Eastern Mediterranean and divvied up the goods between them. And I deal with that a lot in my book, Beirut Heart, and then the other book as well, about what the French and the, um, and the English did do. But France was given a mandate of Syria, and it carved out part of greater Syria to form what we now know today. Is obviously, Lebanon, Mount Lebanon existed in biblical times, but the country itself was carved out to include the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon, which were Phoenician cities, in fact, in the biblical uh, Canaanite history time. France carved out this piece of greater Syria to become a haven for the persecuted Christians of the Middle East. So for the Christians, this was a very important occurrence. Christian Copts from Egypt, Christian Armenians from from Turkey, Chaldeans from Iraq. These were all people who came to Beirut, some of the Christians from Syria, And Mount Lebanon itself always existed as a Christian enclave. They shared it with the Druze, the party that the religious sect that I referred to earlier in the interview. And in fact, another reason that France felt an imperative to form this country that favored the Christians was because of the century-old conflicts between the Druze and the Christians across Mount Lebanon. Christians had been slaughtered many times by the Druze. So for this reason, the Christians felt very strongly about, when the war broke out, about fighting to maintain their dominance and to secure their position that they had prior to the Civil War. The problem is that they fought as down and dirty as everyone else did. So to a large extent, the non-Maronite Christians in Lebanon, whether it be the Greek Orthodox or the Greek Christians or some of the Protestant sects, a lot of them blame, to a good extent, the Maronites for how the war did turn out. The Maronites turned to the Israelis. The Maronites were extreme right-wing fascists, and they turned to the Israelis who furnished them with arms. And it was the Maronite Christians who entered into a partnership, if you want, with Ariel Sharon when he invaded Lebanon in 1982, and it was the Christians who massacred the Palestinians in the Sabra refugee camp under the direction of Ariel Sharon. So that's why I said earlier the Christians have dirty hands in this civil war just like everyone else does. Equally so with the Palestinians, in my opinion. So religion certainly had its good aspects in Lebanon, and it ended up also having very dirty aspects during the Civil War. I think Lebanon has changed significantly because of the war and all of that's happened since then. Is there still this significant enclave of Christians there? As a matter of fact, the majority in Lebanon today are the Shia Muslims, 42%. It's huge. The Christians have been traditionally the better educated, the Sunnis as well, but we're talking right now about the Christians who were at one time a majority. This is probably back in the 30s, 40s, early 50s. But the Christians today are certainly not the majority. They've even refused to have a census done because they don't want anybody to know how few they are. Since the Civil War began, there probably half a million Christians who left Lebanon. In Lebanon, it's even the Sunni feel threatened by the Shia. You've heard these different forms of Islam referred to when we hear news about the Iraq war. 
And certainly we've heard a lot about the Shia after the most recent war between Israel and Hezbollah in the south. I asked you before, you said that people of all religions mixed together there. Do you have close friends who are Muslim over there? I mean, did you have close friends? Was it kind of thing that you'd normally have Muslims over your house then? And Because I think so many Americans are just completely ignorant about what it means to be a Muslim, and they think that everyone's an Islamofascist. I'm surprised you used that word, Islamofascist, because I did an interview in my Israel-Palestine book with a rabbi who happens to be the chief rabbi of the United States Air Force, and he used that because he himself is an extreme fascist. At any rate, nobody ever uses that kind of language in the Middle East. It's just, the, you know, the certain politically right-wing, the Cheneys and the Bushes, and the Netanyahu's who use that. But yes, we had very good Muslim friends. Our lawyer and very good friend was Muslim. And in fact, here in Eau Claire, most of all of our friends are Muslims. We have a lot of Muslims here. I mean, I think that Islam and Muslims have gotten such a bad rap under George Bush that it, it has become distorted. People in the United States equate terrorist with Muslim and Islam, and they don't understand that in any religion now, and at least in the three monotheistic religions, we have a fundamentalism, whether it's Judaic or whether it's Islamic or it's fundamentalist Christians. We have certainly a rise in Christian fundamentalism or of the other two religions as well, something that I don't know that we've seen before to this extent. And I think that George has promoted the theory that Islam equates terrorism simply to continue his war on terrorism. We've gotten rid of communism, per se, and Islam is a perfect new enemy. Well, since you know real Muslims, tell me what they're like. Do they have horns or anything like that? Or do they, I guess they don't eat pork, probably, but... What can you say about them that gives a flavor of what the main line of Islam is like? The Muslims that I know here in Eau Claire or know anywhere in the United States or in the Middle East are ordinary human beings like you and I are who put dignity and love of other ahead of and family, of course, and a poor the rise of Islamic fundamentalism and do not adhere to it in any way. Some of them choose not to eat pork. And that really never even began as a religious tradition. It had everything to do with how unclean pork was at the time, you know, no refrigeration or anything like that. So it was just a food that most people avoided. It's like the women covering their heads. Muhammad or his descendants got that idea from visiting Christian villages because there the women covered their heads. In Islam, nowhere is it written, and this is also according to Karen Armstrong, who is an authority on Islam, there's nowhere written in the Quran that a woman has to cover her head. A woman is asked to dress modestly, and that has many interpretations, but there's nowhere in Islam that a Muslim woman is required to cover her head. These are interpretations by Westerners of Islam or of the Quran. This also is something that Karen Armstrong pointed out. You know, when the war on terrorism began here, 
we had to have an enemy. So we turned to our so-called experts on Islam, and they were quoting things that I thought sounded very bizarre about Islam and about Muhammad and what a terrible person he was, until I went back and I read just the intro into one of Karen Armstrong's books, where she mentions that the early years of the Catholic Church, they did not like Muhammad and his teachings. And so his teachings were translated into English by monks in these monasteries. And they translated Islam into English text the way they wanted it interpreted. So a lot of the traditions that we've been handed down by the Bushites do not in any way, shape, or form represent Islam. In all due respect, I think that if you want to know more about Islam, that you should talk to some uh, Muslim, and they could certainly give you a much better idea of what Islam is about. But I will say that the majority, don't forget that there are 2.3 billion Muslims in the world. Only 22% of those Muslims live in the Middle East, and not all Middle Easterners, as we've just said, are Muslim. The vast majority of these Muslims are, one, opposed to Wahhabism, extreme Islamic fundamentalism. They find it absolutely obscene, the idea of suicide bombers, because there's nowhere in the Quran that one dies, goes to heaven, and gets greeted by 47 virgins. It just isn't there. I think, again, there's a political motivation for blackening the face of Islam, because after all, we need an enemy. How can you justify any actions that you do in our war on terrorism, but by blackening the people that you want to attack? Gonna make this earth our home Feel the cool breeze blowing through the smoke and the heat Hear the gentle voices and the marching feet Singing, call back the fire, draw the missiles down And we'll call this earth our home Peace is the bread we
tiny seed As the acorn grows into the tallest tree Many years ago I heard a soldier say When people want peace, better get out of the way Fred Small's song is called Peace Is. This is an interview with Kathy Salton, author of two books about Lebanon and the Middle East and a commentator on developments in that region. Because people tend to take sides so much about the Middle East, I'm imagining that in your other interviews people have accused you of being anti-Jewish. Do you have Jewish friends as well? Were they part of the folks that you hung with when you were in Beirut? Or are they really other for you, kind of enemies of Lebanon and therefore perhaps less known to you perhaps than the Muslims? Nobody's ever accused me of being anti-Jewish because most people, even if they don't know their Middle East politics, they might accuse me of being biased against Israel. But most people make the distinction between Israel, which is a state, and Israeli politics, which are political, and Judaism, and Jews, because those are religions and religious people. I didn't meet my Jewish friends until I was married, and we were living in Boston when my husband was doing his medical training. All of our friends were Jewish. My brother-in-law was there at the time. He was at MIT. All of his friends were Jewish. In fact, these are still some of our best friends. Very recently, I was in San Antonio, doing a writing course, and one of my husband's instructors from medical school, David Rosenthal, lives in San Antonio, and Daniel is Jewish, very Jewish, very pro-Israeli, but yet I stayed at his house, we talked politics, we didn't agree a lot, but because he was Jewish or not, did not in any way interfere with a friendship, not at all. When I went to Israel, half the people I met were Israelis. Some of my best friends now are Israeli. In fact, my husband's aunt, who was a Carmelite nun, worked in Israel for quite a few years when she knew I was going to Israel-Palestine to do research for my second book. She gave me the name of her Jewish friend, who was the head of the philosophy and theology department at Hebrew University. So she was one of my interviewees. And through her, I met lots of other Jewish Israeli friends an Israeli friend who supplies me every single day with about 40 articles to keep me up to date for my research and work. I cross boundaries. Nobody is an enemy to me. I've started an Israeli-Palestinian dialogue group in Eau Claire. Can't say that we agree 100%, but we've done public radio together. We've dissected inside and out the Hamas elections last January. We've given a presentation to the Universal Unitarian Church. So I cross boundaries, and I feel very comfortable talking to anyone. 
Do you end up assigning blame about the current war, I guess, between Israel and folks in Lebanon, Hezbollah or whomever? Is there a fault in that, or is fault really not relevant? Yes, fault is relevant because innocent people have died and innocent people have lost their homes. And innocent people have become probably irrevocable refugees. So yes, I place blame, but it doesn't go on the people. It goes on a political system, political leadership who's inept in Israel, and a political leadership who's totally inept in Washington, D.C. That's where my blame goes. And, of course, to Hezbollah. It's interesting, Nasrallah, who's the chief of the Hezbollah, just made an interview yesterday. He said that had he known that Israel would wreak such havoc on Lebanon and create 800,000 refugees and kill 1,175 people, that he would never have done what he did on July 12th, kidnapping the two Israelis. Of course, our media says they were captured in Israel. Other media, European media, is now saying, no, they were actually in Lebanon. What most Americans don't know, there have been cross-border incursions between these two parties since May of 2000 when the Israelis pulled out of South Lebanon, ending a 22-year Israeli occupation. That's, in fact, where Hezbollah was born, as a resistance movement against an occupation in South Lebanon. The cross-border incursion on July 12th was essentially had been announced that Nasrallah intended to kidnap Israeli soldiers to hold them in ransom bargaining chips for the hundreds of Lebanese who were in Israeli jails. So when this happened on the border, everybody was caught off guard. The Israelis in the north, who it turns out had no provisions at all, their government totally abandoned them. So these poor people were at a loss. At least the Lebanese have had 15 years of civil war, and they know what to do when a bomb falls. We fill up our gas tank. We go to the grocery store. We make a little carry-on. We put all our important papers in it, our cash, etc., so that if you have to flee your home in, in a minute's notice, you're ready to go. But the poor people in North Israel had have experience doing that sort of thing, so it was very difficult for them. The same thing happened in south of Lebanon, of course, too, because once the Israelis bombed all of the roads to the south, none of the um, medical assistance or any kind of assistance got to the people in the south. So by the time they did finally get there, people had been without water for days with young children, etc. It was a very bad situation, but it was a situation that was horrendous on both sides of the border. So who was at fault? Who do I blame? Of course I blame a political entity, but I certainly don't blame the people. I want to turn my focus now to the work that you're doing. What is the primary focus of your work right now? Well, aside from my writing, I sit on the executive board of the National Peace Foundation, which is an NGO based in D.C. I'm fortunate enough to be friends with Sarah Harder, who also lives in Eau Claire, who is the president. And two years ago, she invited me to come on board for my expertise on the Middle East. So the past two years, I've been trying to develop some programs. I did successfully last year bring the Jerusalem Women Tour to Eau Claire. I'm happy to say that this year in February, a theater producer and a professor from Platteville and I are working to bring the same Jerusalem Women Tour back to cover every single campus in Wisconsin, including Marquette and Milwaukee, and to include most of the campuses in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Another thing that we've done, and we've used Eau Claire, as I mentioned earlier, a dial- uh, Israeli-Palestinian dialogue group. 
I believe it's very important in order to solve the crisis in the Middle East, particularly at a time when our servicemen are serving in in such a hellhole as Iraq, that we must, absolutely must solve the festering Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to know what's going on. We have to know the facts. We have to study them. And that was one of the, my motivations for writing Israeli and Palestinian voices. And that's what we try to do with our dialogue group. And we're trying to start them up nationwide amongst our members too. And we provide on our website a list of resources, which I have in the back of my book, to try to create better informed citizenry. A better informed citizenry is going to hold our officials accountable for what they do in our name and hopefully lead to the resolution of what I consider to be one of the missing cornerstones of world peace, and that's the end of the Israeli occupation of Palestinian land. There's a part I always like to hear from my guests, and that is, where does this fit into your religious spiritual life, into your values? Why is this important? Why is it more important to get national health care in the United States? Or why isn't it more important to worry about the survivors of Katrina? Or why isn't it more important to work about the situation down in Colombia, which is pretty bad? Why that place? And what does it mean in terms of your original relationship with God, which you grew up with through Catholicism? Why do you have to do this work? I don't think you're getting paid for this. No, I'm certainly not getting paid for this. I think I'll start with your question about why am I not concentrating my efforts on, say, uh, universal health care. Of course, I believe firmly in universal health care and would support any candidate who does. But I leave that to the people who have some expertise in that area. You know, not a lot of people have expertise in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the Middle East conflict, and I feel like I'm best serving my fellow countrymen by endeavoring to help them better understand the conflict. Does my religion play into what I do? If it means that I believe that all of us who live on this earth deserve to live in dignity with justice, I think that's my motivation for doing my work. Is that religious? I think so. I'm certain that even though I don't practice my Catholicism, I'm certain that my upbringing as a Christian, as a Catholic, has probably influenced my work. But I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. You know, I don't specifically think that religion motivates me, not at all. I think my motivation is my knowledge of the Middle East, my desire to educate. And I guess I don't think religion necessarily plays a role in that. I don't know what else to tell you about that, Mark. I guess there's two parts that I'm hoping to hear something about what's true within you. And that is, number one, Where do you get your inspiration and your support for carrying out this work? And I think number two, what are those religious spiritual ideals that are right up there at the top for you, the ones that are most important? Evidently, it's not to get rich because I think you could make more money in a different field. So maybe that's not one of your high aspirations. What are your highest aspirations? I think my highest aspiration is to promote peace in the Middle East, to see that peoples on this divide, whether they be Israelis or Palestinians, can live a life of dignity and live a life of equality. You asked me earlier what motivates me. What motivates me is the people that I know in the Middle East, the people that I've interviewed, the people that I've met on both sides, whether they be Israeli soldiers at the Wailing Wall 
or a refugee living in a refugee camp outside of Ramallah. Every single person, whether they were Israeli or Palestinian, told me that they wanted an end to the occupation and they just wanted to live in peace. I think that's a strong motivation. That's certainly what keeps me glued to my computer day in and day out. I'm in the process now of starting a new project on South Lebanon because I think that there again, it's another opportunity that I've been given to try to help people understand the complexities of the Middle East. I know you have to get back to other interviews. I have a couple more questions that maybe can help people follow up on this interview. Where would they go for your website, and is there a separate website for the National Peace Foundation? Yes, I do have a website. It's kathysalton.com. That's Kathy with a C. On that website, one of the categories is resources. They are the same resources that are listed in the back of Israeli and Palestinian Voices, a dialogue with both sides. It's a very comprehensive resource site. It lists all the Israeli sites, whether they be Israeli government sites or Israeli peace sites. They have a few Quaker sites on them. There are a lot of stateside. There's the Israeli newspapers, the Independent, the Daily Star in Lebanon. In other words, if you were to access these resources on a routine basis, you would begin to get a glimmer of what does and doesn't go on in the Middle East, and be able to decipher the major differences that you read, for example, in the Israeli newspaper as opposed to the Washington Post or the New York Times. And is there a website for the National Peace Foundation? Yes, there's nationalpeace.org, and there you can definitely access the information from there as well. Do you spend a lot of time here in Eau Claire, or are you always out gallivanting around the globe? No, I spend the primary part of my time in Eau Claire. I spend maybe a few months in D.C., off and on for board meetings. I'm going to be doing some book tours this fall, which I had not done previously. I have a daughter who lives in Rome with our only granddaughter, and I have a son and his wife who live in Mexico. So I do travel back and forth those places as well, but I do call Eau Claire my home. Kathy, thank you for speaking up. I also think that by caring and by speaking and by having roots in both places, you maybe offer a hope that peace can happen and these nations all over the world can somehow unite in some kind of peace. Inshallah. That means if God wills. Thanks, Kathy. Life. 
song was The Great Peace March by Holly Near. You've been listening to an interview with Kathy Sultan, author of A Beirut Heart, One Woman's War. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, and you can find other programs and helpful links and information on that site as well. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher call for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness.